Amen. Now I invite you to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Our text this evening is the first six verses of chapter 3 as we continue going through the letters to the seven churches. This is church number 5, the church in Sardis. This is a very short letter. It may be the shortest of the seven, but it is a letter that reminds us of the challenges that we have as a church to testify to the goodness and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you please give attention to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. His word is living and powerful. It is sufficient for our lives and godliness. And it is authoritative over us. Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white. For they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot out his name of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray for God's blessing upon his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would use these words written so long ago, but written even indeed to us now as they were written to all your people to teach us, to encourage us, to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As we look at the church around us, not society, but as we look at the church around us, we can often be dismayed at the things that we see. Perhaps you, like me, have received flyers in the mail from churches who do not talk about the preaching that they have or the scriptures that they hold dear or the prayer that they seek to offer up or even the compassion and service that they offer to one another, but rather all of the services that they have, the coffee that they serve, how hip they are, the ways in which they can meet felt needs. And we're tempted, I think, often to look out there and to be easily and quickly judgmental and to say to ourselves, 
well, I'm really glad we're not like them. If we were like them, it'd be horrible. Now, we shouldn't be seeking to do the things that these churches are doing, but I think the Lord here in this letter to Sardis is a reminder to, is reminding us that we need to look first to ourselves and to make sure that we do not slip into spiritual slumber. Because you see, as much as the new and the secular and the hip can be problematic, it can be problematic to rest in our reputation, to rest in what we think we have done, to look around us and to be satisfied and not to be active in our pursuit personally of the gospel or in pursuing it for others. And so I'd like us to look at this text. Again, just a reminder that these seven letters were not written to specific churches so that we can point to them and say, well, we're not them, but rather they are types. They are problems that churches have. They are faults that find themselves in churches, and we need to be aware of them so that we do not fall likewise. And so very briefly this evening, I'd like us to look at three things. First, I'd like us to look at when reputation meets reality. When reputation meets reality. And this is a lesson that I think every church can take. And then second, we will see a call from our Lord Jesus to wake up from slumber. To wake up from the sleep that threatens to take us from our mission. And then thirdly, we will see the promise of repentance, the promise that our Lord lays out to those who repent and believe and follow the gospel. So when reputation meets reality, a wake-up call from slumber and the promise given to those who repent. Let's look first then at when reputation meets reality. Now, you notice we have been, as we've gone through each of these letters, we've looked at the cities as well as the churches, because the cities have been instructive to us in terms of describing what these churches are like or challenges that they faced or opposition that's in front of them. And this is no different. It is interesting, to say the least, that the problems that occur in the church in Sardis are very much like the problems of the city of Sardis. But what is Sardis like? Sardis is a glorious city. It is the number one city in the mind of every person from Sardis. It has a long and storied reputation. It was the capital of the Lydian kingdom, which no longer exists at this time. It was the leading city at the region until it was replaced by Pergamum. It was the place where it was claimed that the dyeing of wool fabric was invented, except for Thyatira and Derby and Alexandria have replaced it as centers of the textile industry. It was a place that was ancient, founded in 1200 B.C., and it was founded as an impregnable fortress. So much so that a a quip was invented that taking Sardis was 
a way of saying doing the impossible. It was built up on a large mountain with steep slopes. It had magnificent and a magnificent gates that was guarded. It was thought not possible to be conquered. It was so proud of its ability in wealth and might of military power that one of its kings, actually its last king, King Croesus, was trying to determine whether he would go to war with Cyrus the Persian. You all are familiar with Cyrus the Persian and the Persian Empire. And what Croesus did was he went to the, the oracle at Delphi and he asked the oracle at Delphi if he should go to war against Persia. And in its typical ambiguous fashion, the oracle said, if you go to war, you will destroy a great empire. And Croesus said, well, this is obviously something I should do. I will destroy Persia. The only problem is the empire he would destroy would be his own. Because you see, during the midst of a siege of Sardis, crack troops crawled up an area that you weren't supposed to crawl up on the face of the mountain. And a, a gate was left unguarded because the soldiers knew no one could come that way. And they were lax and they slept and they did not guard it. And the city fell. And 300 years later, another army came to attack. And while the soldiers again slept and ignored the other gates, they watched intently over the main gate, the same thing happened and Sardis fell. So this mighty wealthy city has almost become a proverb for slumber, for laziness, for lackadaisical commitment. And this is true, I think, of Sardis in this present day as this letter is written. You see, Sardis was famous for living in the past. They had appealed to Rome to build a temple to Caesar. But they lost that bid to Smyrna. They had a huge temple to Artemis, rivaling that of the city of Ephesus. But it never quite got finished. Do you see the pattern here? They were arrogant, they were overconfident, and because of that, they were careless and lazy. Much the way that in our modern day we think of sports teams that aren't hungry for a victory, that lose to teams they shouldn't lose to because they're overconfident, they're sloppy, they're asleep at the switch. This is what the city of Sardis is like. Jesus sees this and he sees that the church is much like this. And so he comes as judge to, start a, to Sardis with a stern rebuke. It is a, a letter that is very similar to the letter to Ephesus. It is a challenge to the church at Sardis. It is a short letter, but it is almost entirely negative. Jesus is judging Sardis. Who is this Jesus? You'll notice that we have seen in letter after letter how Jesus is introduced as the writer of these letters, or the authors of these letters, that he is described in a way that is helpful in understanding the problem for the church. Here he is, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And so we see that Jesus is two things here. He is the source of life and he is the sovereign Lord. 
He holds the seven spirits in His hand. You'll recall this refers to the fullness of the Spirit of God to meet the spiritual needs of the churches. Jesus is the one who holds the Spirit of life. Jesus is the one who dispenses the Spirit of life and power. He is the source of revival. Do you long for revival in the land? Do you long for revival in Houston? Do you long for revival in America and in the world? If you do, where do you seek revival from? Is it in laws that our government would pass? Is it in more work that the church can do? Or do you seek revival at the throne of King Jesus? Because He is the one who holds revival in His hands. He is the one who lifts up the church, who breathes new life into His people. He holds the seven spirits in His hand. He also holds the seven stars. You'll recall that the seven stars are emblematic of the angels of the churches. Jesus holds them in the power of His hand. Jesus is the one in charge of each and every church. Jesus is in charge of this church right now. Do you believe that? Do you count on that? Do you trust in that? Because Jesus is the one who is sovereign. He holds the destiny of the church and of you, Christian, in His hands. There's no safer place to be. Well, our Lord Jesus, who holds life and revival in His hands and who holds power in His hands, speaks then to this church of this proud, arrogant, lazy city. And we find out very quickly that this church is proud, arrogant, and lazy. <coughs> we might refer to them so that we make sure to include all denominations not as the First Presbyterian Church of Sardis or the First Baptist Church of Sardis, but it is certainly the First Church of Sardis. We might say the First Nominal Church of Sardis. They have a reputation. They are known. They have a very big sign. They have large brochures, big ads in the paper. But our Lord sees beyond this. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. But you are dead. Now, if those words don't hit you like a thunderclap, I don't know what will. You see, this is a church that is all reputation. This is not a little, quaint, dying church. This is a church that is full of itself. It's the kind of a church... When someone walks up to one of its members and says, Excuse me, are you a Christian? The response is something like this. Well, of, well, of course I am. I go to the First Church of Sardis. My great-granduncle was a founding member of the First Church of Sardis. Can't you see our large building? Do you want to hear about our programs? Do you want... Maybe to me to explain to you how important we are in the community. But if pressed, well, do you, do you all have a prayer meeting? Well, no, no, we don't have time for that. Do you 
listen to the scriptures as they're read and preached. Well, I haven't been in, in some months now, but I am a member in good standing. You see, it's all reputation. It's not reality. Jesus says he knows their works and that they are not complete. I have found, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Their works are imperfect, not because they're unfinished, but because they do not have divine approval. God does not approve of what they are doing. They are concerned that man approves of what they're doing, but God does not. Now, I want you to see something else as well. When Jesus says, I know your works and they're not complete, this is the section of the letters that we've been reading where the strengths of the church are listed. This church has no strength. Its strength, if you want to call it that, is a weakness. The other thing that we have noticed as we've looked at these letters is that these churches are beset by problems external to them. Jews persecuting them. Roman authorities beating them, discriminating against them. Where is that here? There is no external influence to hinder them. There's no persecution described. This church should have every opportunity to stand boldly for the Lord Jesus Christ. But instead, they merely stand for themselves. You see, if we say that in Pergamum and in Thyatira, that some in the church had fallen for the world, here in Sardis, the whole of the congregation has fallen for the world. They don't seek to stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a place where nominalism prevails. Do you know what nominalism is? It's when it comes from the word name, which is the same word that we get this reputation from. You see, this church was merely concerned about what they looked like to others. They were so-called Christians. They were Christians in name, but they did not have a living, breathing, vibrant relationship with the living God through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, they were satisfied to simply be thought of as Christians. This is a problem in Sardis. But it's not a new problem. For the prophet Isaiah understood this problem. He said, because these... Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. You remember our Lord understood this when he looked at the religious leaders of his day and said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. That's what the church at Sardis is like. So what can be done? How can a church that is so satisfied in itself be found loyal to Jesus? Well, it can only be done by waking up from slumber. And so Jesus issues a wake-up call. Look at what he says in verse 2. Wake up! We might also say, be alert, be on your guard, watch. Now this would be especially ironic to those who lived in Sardis. A city that had a reputation for being asleep on watch. But Jesus says, you must wake up. You see, we don't want a church that is merely peaceful. 
There are peaceful churches. They're peaceful like a cemetery. There's no life in them. They're churches where the noise of babies crying is never heard. They're churches where tears are never heard as Christians comfort each other through sorrow. They're places where the word of the living God and fervent prayer are not heard because we need to just keep quiet, be civilized. But you see, Jesus says the church should be a place teeming with life. It should be a place where joy is found, where sorrow is comforted, where praise is lifted up, where petitions are brought to our Lord God, a place where families are brought together, This is a vibrant church, a covenant community around the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, if we don't have that, we can fall asleep. Even those whom Jesus says have not soiled their garments are in danger of falling asleep. And you know how dangerous that is. Have you ever fallen asleep or nodded off a bit while driving? (coughs) Only to be woken up as you hit the median? Or you drove over the side of the road? It's a very scary thing, isn't it? You realize how important it is to be awake. That's what Jesus is saying. But they are not just to be awake, they're also to strengthen each other. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. He's warning them. Your church is about to die. You must strengthen each other and strengthen the church. And this kind of language is nurturing language. It's the kind of language that describes how something is made strong and then is established and made firm. Jesus calls upon them to strengthen what remains. And then thirdly, he calls upon them to remember. Remember is one of the most important words in the Bible. Right before the Israelites are about to enter into the promised land, in Deuteronomy 8, Moses reminds them that they are to remember what God has done. Because you see, this remembering is not like having a good day timer in which you write down everything so that it's all at hand. This kind of remembering is a remembering that causes you to act, to be active, to trust in the Lord, to remember what He has done, and to act for the future based on that. Remember what you have received and heard, Jesus tells this church. Remember the doctrine you received. Remember the calls to Christian living that you have been given. But don't just remember them and act on them. Keep it. Keep the things that you have been given. Guard them like a precious jewel. Obey them. Be like those who have not soiled their garments. They are to wake up. They are to strengthen. They are to remember. They are to keep. And then finally, they are to repent. Jesus warns them that they are dying. He warns them that reputation alone is wholly insufficient. As a matter of fact, it is keeping them from the vibrant life in Christ that they are called to. They're going into a final sleep, Jesus says. 
and He will return and judge them. He will come back like a thief and they won't even know that He is coming. There is a warning. Repent now. Don't be concerned with exactly when I am coming back. But repent now. Perhaps you, like me, have seen some of the foolishness that has gone out recently as a radio personality is calling for the end of the world on a specific date. I believe it's May 21st. And I read an article of a young woman who painted her car with verses and with the call that the world is going to end on May 21st. And she's thinking that this is the way to remind people that they need to come to Jesus. There's only two problems with that. The first is May 22nd, when it comes. The second is the thought that we must have some sort of fixed date in order to be moved to repentance. But you know as well as I do that that's foolishness. You see this in your families. What happens when you tell your children to do something by 1 o'clock p.m.? Do they start at 8 a.m.? Do they start at 10 a.m.? Or do you see them scrambling around at 10, or excuse me, at 12.50, trying to get done by 1? What good does the deadline do? You see, Jesus calls us to repent right now. Not sometime from now. Right now. And if we are to repent, if we are to move from nominalism, if we are to move away from reputation to reality, there is a promise given to those who repent. It's actually a threefold promise that we see here in the text. First is a promise of victory. Second is a promise of life. And third is a promise of being with Christ. Do you see it? In verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. The one who overcomes, who seeks the reality, who overcomes his slumber, who overcomes the world, he will be dressed in white garments of holiness. The one who overcomes will be given life. His name will be in the book of life and it will never be blotted out, Jesus says. He will be protected by the Lord. And then thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, not only is there a promise of victory, not only is there a promise of life, but there is a promise of being with Jesus. I will confess His name before my Father and His angels, says Jesus. He will confess your name, Christian. What comfort is that? You see, this letter is a warning, and it's a warning to us. Because, you see, if we mark ourselves by our reputation as a Bible-believing church, or we stop in our acceptance of Reformed confessions and creeds, or we stop in the way our families look to others, and we do not seek to push onward, to have the Bible and our confessions be a part of our lives, changing the way we relate to one another, the way we live, the way we love, the way we serve. To have our families be little churches 
where the Word of God is known and where we encourage each other within and outside of families, if we seek to merely stop at a reputation, we failed. And that is a temptation for us because I will tell you, I will challenge you, that to the world out there, we look very good. And it is very easy to rest there. Now, I'm not suggesting in some foolish way that we should look bad, that we should not look good, we should not have the savor of life to others. But my point is we must show that there is reality beyond the reputation. There wasn't in Sardis. By God's grace, and by the power of Jesus Christ and the work of His Spirit, there is and will continue to be here in Katy. Do you trust the Lord to do this in our lives? Pray for that this week. Let's pray.